Welcome to Scam This. You know, don't mess with Texas. Lately, it seems like Texas's government has been taking that to heart, passing some of the most controversial legislation in the nation. We'll dive in. Then, if you've been trying to get a job lately, you might have noticed it's really effing hard. Strange, right? Because there are apparently a lot of job openings, especially in what we're told are the industries of the future. So what's going on here? We've also got the details on the race to develop drugs to treat COVID. And speaking of something else that needs a cure, we'll chat about bad behavior in the NFL and why it's still so common. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, Immigration and Customs Enforcement is ending the practice of workplace deportation raids. Here's the context. ICE, as in Immigration and Customs Enforcement, has been raiding workplaces that employ undocumented workers since the presidency of George W. Bush. That practice, in which workers are arrested, often in groups and then deported, accelerated under Obama and got really aggressive under Trump. Those raids are often devastating for communities and families relying on that income. And even the DHS now admits employers often use the threat of raids as a way to suppress workers' rights, leaving workers stuck in unfair conditions and afraid to speak up. While the U.S. won't be raiding businesses to deport workers anymore, it is promising to crack down on employers, it says, exploit unauthorized workers and conduct illegal activities. Up next... Social Security recipients will receive an annual cost of living adjustment of nearly 6% next year. Okay, Boomer, that's the biggest increase in Social Security payments in four decades, though it's barely enough to keep pace with inflation. Prices for consumer goods are also up more than 5% compared to a year ago, so Social Security recipients aren't exactly getting a huge boost here. And about Social Security, we need to talk. Last month, the Social Security Administration said it's only stocked till the mid-2030s, meaning there may not be money to send out for anyone's retirement after that, leaving ahem, a lot of millennials to wonder if we'll ever get to benefit from the payments we help pay for each paycheck. If your first reaction to that news is to reach for your vape pen, well, maybe don't. But if you do have one, we have some good news. This week, the FDA gave a nod to e-cigarettes, approving one tobacco-flavored vape pen. Yeah, all they approved was one vape pen and two tobacco-flavored cartridges out of millions of product applications. We might have forgotten that vaping was the big health mystery before the pandemic, but the FDA has been examining if vaping is safe the whole time and figuring out what products they want to approve for use. The FDA's product criteria is pretty specific. Vaping products have to be a safe substitute for cigarette smokers, and they can't market to teens and non-smokers. The jury's still out on what else might get approved. Flavors that could be seen as kid-friendly, like mango or mint, are out, while the fate of menthol is still up in the air. But this week's decision does mean it looks like vaping, in some form, is officially here to stay. Just please, don't do it in restaurants. Okay, we know we've talked a lot about COVID-19 vaccines on this show, 
but we've realized we haven't spent a lot of time on COVID treatments. And while treatments are not a replacement for getting vaxxed, developing them is critical for saving lives. And it just so happens, treatments have been in the news a lot lately. A potential breakthrough in treating COVID. And the U.S. could soon have the world's first pill to treat the coronavirus. Merck's first-of-its-kind antiviral pill to treat COVID could be prescribed to Americans by the end of this year. Before you ask what exactly the Merck pill is, let's start at the beginning. We're going to break down what COVID treatments are already available, why this new announcement could be a game changer, and what to look out for next, with some help. My name's Judith Courier, and I'm a professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Courier is actually studying COVID treatments herself. So we asked her, what's the process like to develop one? It really does take a long time, particularly for new medications. You have to enroll people who have documented COVID. You have to set up a study and think about it with COVID. What did we do? You know, we've told people stay home, stay home, stay home. So when you're trying to do studies to evaluate treatments, people have to come out of their homes and go somewhere to enroll in a study. We have to be able to see people in person, draw their blood, get samples to make sure they have COVID and monitor them closely during the study to make sure that the medications are both safe and effective. So far, the FDA has said two types of COVID-19 treatments are good to go. Treatments for people in an early stage of COVID who aren't in the hospital and drugs for people who are. For people in the hospital with a more severe infection, there's one FDA-approved drug that's available. It's called remdesivir. You get it via an IV, and it's basically only given out when people are already really sick. As for those in an earlier stage with a more mild or moderate case of COVID-19, we have monoclonal antibodies that have been approved for emergency authorization by the FDA. And these are given by IV infusion, or in the case of the Regeneron combination, can be given subcutaneously. The Biden administration is doubling down on these antibody treatments, announcing in September that they would help distribute them across all states instead of having individual hospitals order them directly. It's also one of the treatments President Trump received when he was in the hospital with COVID-19. We should also note there's one drug that's made some headlines that is definitely not approved by anyone legit. It's called ivermectin, and it's technically a treatment to get rid of parasites in animals. But despite all of that, and the FDA posting a very salty Instagram saying, you are not a horse, a lot of people are demanding prescriptions. It's still totally unproven and can actually make people pretty sick. So maybe listen to the FDA on this one. Okay, that's what's already in use, for good or for bad. But earlier this month, drug maker Merck entered the chat and said, not so fast, we're making a pill that you can take anytime, anywhere which some medical professionals believe is a big deal. Having a oral pill therapy for use in early COVID is a game changer. Being able to distribute and, and have people take something at home will make a huge difference. A pill could also alleviate burdens on healthcare systems, especially in low-income countries, since it doesn't require any health workers to administer, and it could make getting treatment for COVID easier. How easy? Patients taking molnupiravir, 
the Thor's hammer-inspired name of Merck's drug, will need to take four pills twice a day for five days. Fast math, that's a 40-pill course of treatment. So far, this all sounds pretty great, but does this pill actually work? The rates of hospitalization in the people in their study who didn't receive the drug, who received the matching placebo, was about 14%. That's really high. The people who got the drug was reduced to 7%, which is still high. It didn't completely eliminate hospitalization, but reduced it by about 50%. In fact, these results were apparently so promising that medical experts monitoring the clinical trials stopped them early in the hopes of getting the treatment out there sooner. And this week, Merck has asked the FDA to issue its pill an emergency use authorization, which could come in a matter of weeks. If approved, Merck says it's ready to start making millions of doses, and the U.S. government has already bought almost 2 million of them. As for outside of the U.S., Merck says it's going to be tying the price of the drug to the income of the country in the hope that lower-income nations won't have to break the bank to get access. Even though it seems like treatments have taken a backseat to vaccines over the past year and a half, Dr. Courier says that's kind of an illusion. And in fact, she's got her eyes on a few new treatments in the works. There are several others that are in development and are being studied, and I'm actually involved in the study of, of some of them. There's one that Pfizer's developing that's in clinical trials. There's one that Atea Roche is developing, and there's also one from Shinogi. So there are other drugs in development that are moving quickly to clinical trials so that we do have options for early oral therapy. When you think of Texas, maybe you think of its nickname, the Lone Star State. Or maybe you think of barbecue, college football, or cowboy boots. But recently, Texas has been in the headlines for a bunch of political reasons. The most restrictive abortion law in the country went into effect in Texas. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law today some of the most sweeping voting restrictions in the United States. People can now carry handguns in public without any kind of license or training. That is all now legal in Texas. The latest move by Texas Governor Greg Abbott dropped on Monday when he issued an order banning all vaccine mandates in the state. The practical effect this law is actually going to have is still TBD. Lawsuits to try to stop it are pretty much guaranteed. And major employers in Texas, like American Airlines and Southwest, say they're just going to ignore this and keep following the national vaccine mandate for employers of more than 100 people. Regardless, a number of other Republican governors now say they want to follow Texas's lead. So as goes Texas, so goes the nation. We don't know enough about Texas to actually say that with any certainty. So we called up Renu Ryasim, a national correspondent for Politico based in El Paso, to learn more. Governor Abbott has been in office since... 2015. And he's been a pretty low-key governor for most of that time. And in a lot of ways, when he um, first won election, he was a bit of a moderate. But this year, he's facing three primary challengers in the Republican primary. And they're really pressing him really hard on a lot of issues, especially around COVID mandates. So as a result, we've seen the governor this year move 
really far to the right on a number of issues. And so we're seeing a lot of other Republican governors line up and say, oh, wait, I want to do this, too, um, because I want to show how conservative I am as well. It feels like beyond this mandate ban, all eyes have been on Texas for a while, from voting rights restrictions to an abortion ban to a super lenient gun law being passed. And I want to know why these really conservative policies keep getting passed and ending up as national news. Well, Texas has long been at the forefront of controversial conservative legislation. Some of it is just the conservative complexion of the state. The voters are not necessarily as conservative as some of the politics. But the way that maps are drawn, the way that politics is run here, a lot of lawmakers and the governor, the thing that they need to do is get through the Republican primary. And that has pushed a lot of Republican lawmakers into really adopting um, priorities that speak to a small group of primary voters. I think a lot of people in our audience have heard that Texas could swing to be a Democratic state one day, but that seems really at odds with all this conservative legislation that the government there is passing. And so I'm just curious, could you walk me through the demographics of Texas and how they've changed over the years? Texas has seen explosive population growth in the last 10 years. 95% of the newcomers are people of color, Black, Hispanic, Asian American. At the moment, the white population in Texas is at 40%. And so, you know, it is already a majority minority state. It is also an urban and suburban state. So rural areas in the state are losing population, white rural Texans. You know, I think this is image of Texas we think of like cowboys and, you know, ranches. But that population of Texas is dwindling. And the urban population, the areas around Houston and Dallas and Austin and Fort Worth are growing like crazy. But the reality is Republicans still hold all levers of power. And they are doing a lot to sort of fight some of these changes. And some of the proposed maps that Texas lawmakers are drawing They're drawing districts where in 60 percent of those districts, they would be majority white districts. And so that's just sort of one way that they've managed to hang on to power. And so I think for people in the rest of the country who are sort of saying, well, how can Republicans keep winning? I think looking at Texas is a really good way to see that because you do, like I said, have a party that's just out of step with a majority of the people. But it procedurally and in all these other ways, if they can control things, they can keep winning. You've mentioned the buzzy race for governor next year. What should people be looking out for? And is Matthew McConaughey, who I think said he's thinking of running, actually part of the story here? Or is he just a distraction? I think he's just a distraction. (laughs) I know what he's doing. It's hard for me to imagine that he would run. I do believe this is ultimately going to be a race between Betcher Rourke and Governor Abbott. For the Democrats, I think, you know, the field is frozen until Beto makes his announcement. And the reality is if he runs, he will be at a disadvantage. Governor Abbott has already raised, I think, more than $55 million. Abbott also has this huge voter turnout machine. And so there's a lot of ifs on the Democratic side. You know, who is their candidate going to be? How much can this person raise? And are they going to deploy that money wisely? And is Texas at a place where they're so fed up with how far right the state has moved, that they're willing to elect a Democrat. There's a lot of big question marks there. Without a candidate and without knowing that candidate's strategy, it's just Abbott appears to be in this moment still the front runner, despite the fact he's passed and advocated and signed a number of incredibly unpopular policies. And I think that's a dynamic that's a little bit hard for people outside of Texas to understand. They think, you know, 
how these policies are passing. And, you know, if you look at this abortion ban, it does not pull well. You know, it's not what a majority of Texans want. But if they don't have somebody else to vote for, what are they going to do? Right. I think that's what it comes down to. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Skimmers. I want to tell you about a show I think you're going to love. It's called We Can Do Hard Things, and it's hosted by untamed author Glennon Doyle. Join Glennon each week to drop the fake and talk honestly about the hard and do what we were all meant to do down here. Help each other carry the hard so we can all live a little bit lighter and braver, more free and less alone. Listen and follow We Can Do Hard Things, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back to the show. We talk a lot on this show about the job market. The good news. Emerging industries that are about to blow up. A record high number of job openings. Wages up to a record high of over $30 an hour. And the bad. Hundreds of layoffs. Jobs are being outsourced to an overseas company. The gender pay gap. Wages haven't tracked productivity since the 1970s. But this week, we wanted to zoom in on a story that involves a little bit of both. There's a number of things going on, and it's sort of an all-of-the-above situation. That's Catherine Dill, a reporter at The Wall Street Journal who focuses on early careers. And what she's talking about, some people, like the CEO of LinkedIn, have called the Great Reshuffle. It describes the many Americans who say they're not happy at work and would be open to changing careers, especially as new fields emerge and others die out. You have a lot of folks leaving their current jobs because they think they're going to find something better somewhere else. You have people doing extraordinary reevaluations of their whole career and what it is they really want to be doing and what they want from work. For workers in certain industries, Dill says finding a better job in a more lucrative field can be pretty straightforward. For example, people with experience working in bars or restaurants are starting to hit it off with the insurance industry. They're great at the things that insurance companies need. They can process transactions really quickly. They can deal with people who are typically annoyed about, like, cold salmon. They can deal with an angry customer and, you know, turn around a transaction really quickly. And those companies are willing to train those workers. And so those are some pipelines that had sort of previously existed and they were ready to go when the hospitality industry really cratered during the pandemic. But for many others, changing careers now is turning out to be anything but simple. Dill says she's heard about a number of barriers popping up, including one your team might be dealing with now. Being so short-staffed, you can't spare the time to scout for new colleagues, even if you could really use the help. Another challenge... There is a recruiter shortage. With too few recruiters, the digital tools many companies use to screen candidates are creating another problem. Automated job screeners can be pretty focused on looking for keywords, like years of experience at a certain type of job, at the expense of seeing, well, a lot else. While a human recruiter on a screening call might be able to hear your enthusiasm for a new role, a bot just scanning your resume might not think you're worth the time. Dill says this is causing a lot of people who were otherwise excited about changing careers during the great reshuffle to feel like it's becoming a great disappointment. 
you're seeing this kind of free-for-all of people being contacted by recruiters, but then never hearing back, sometimes having a first-round interview that they feel has gone successfully and then not hearing back. These are all things that are typical to the job search and the hiring process, but they're happening in enormous numbers right now that I think is blending this sort of frantic quality to a time where there is some great opportunity. Workers do have some incredible leverage, but there's also a lot of turbulence. There are bigger reasons why changing careers now can be easier said than done, especially if the field you want to join requires some technical know-how. There is not as much training in the labor market as there was decades ago. It's something that companies have stripped out during downturns and not always replaced. And again, it's something that really we've never tried to do all at once at this scale. Some companies are stepping up to that challenge. So we are very focused on leading in technology, right? That's Justina Nixon-Saint-Teal, the VP and Global Head of Corporate Social Responsibility at the tech company IBM. IBM's been around for 110 years, and to keep up with changing technology and intense global competition, Nixon-Saint-Teal says it can't afford to wait for workers to train themselves for new roles. When you consider AI and cloud and quantum, for us to make sure that we have not just a skilled workforce, but a diverse skilled workforce, we need to invest in bringing these types of programs to those who need it the most. This week, IBM announced plans to help skill 30 million people around the world by 2030. But this isn't about paying people with master's degrees to get PhDs, or even people with bachelors to go to grad school. For some jobs, those advanced degrees are necessary, but some experts and employers think companies are too obsessed with four-year degrees, and that causes them to overlook a lot of people, only to then end up in a labor crunch. Only around one-third of Americans over age 25 have bachelor's degrees, but almost 75% of new jobs in recent years require them. Some people say finishing a four-year degree is a sign of our maturity and intelligence, but a lot of us know it's our real-world experience that makes us good employees, not what we studied in college. So one of the things that we very much focus on is how do you get the credentials? How do you get the skills and the credentials without having to get a four-year degree and also be able to move into you know, a meaningful job, something that increases your economic and social mobility? And that last part about creating more social mobility is key, since according to one study, a simple four-year degree requirement for a job effectively screens out close to 70% of African-Americans and close to 80% of Latinx workers. You can have skills, you can have experience, you can have a credential and still be successful at many of the tech jobs there are today, where in the past, you know, you would have needed a four-year degree. IBM had made the decision that we were um, not going to require a four-year degree for every job. And I think right now around 50% of our job postings don't require it. So I think we've been a leader in that space. And I think a lot of companies are looking at this as well. IBM's plans alone probably won't be able to fix all the problems making the great reshuffle so tricky. But they're a start. And for any businesses out there dragging their feet, concerned about the costs of reskilling workers or changing their hiring practices, Nixon St. Teal says thinking bold is good for business, too. 
and it could even help keep current employees from feeling like they need to join the great reshuffle. When we have the opportunity and we could bring diverse talent into IBM, that benefits our business and it benefits our bottom line. And then we also have IBMers who are very proud of working for a responsible company. This is the right thing for us to do as a leader in the technology field. So it helps with instilling pride in our employees as well. And it helps with how we engage with customers and clients. So absolutely, it's a benefit to us, but it's a bigger benefit to society. We know we just gave you a lot of info and that some of these challenges are hard to overcome. But there are ways you can navigate a job search, even if it feels overwhelming. We've been collecting advice for how to navigate the great reshuffle. So tune in next week for that. To end our show, we're talking about sports, which is a bit of a change for us, but hear us out. This week, John Gruden, the coach of the NFL team, the Las Vegas Raiders, resigned after offensive emails of his were uncovered. To learn more and to talk about why workplace accountability is still a challenge in 2021, we're talking to Bridget Armstrong. She's the host of our brand new podcast, Pop Cultured with the Skim, which had its premiere episode this week. Hey, Bridget. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. So, Bridget, what happened here? The coach of the Raiders this week stepped down. Gruden is a big deal. He's won a Super Bowl in the NFL. He's an ESPN analyst. And actually, a bulk of these emails that he was fired over came from his days as an ESPN analyst. The emails were sent to Bruce Allen, who's the former president of the Washington football team. Allen is currently under investigation by the NFL for harassment and verbal abuse claims during his tenure with the Washington team. What was in the emails is the problem here. Both Allen and Gruden denounced women referees. They denounced the drafting of gay players. They used a lot of homophobic, racist, and misogynistic language to talk about players in the NFL, other coaches. And it wasn't just that. Allen was already under investigation for sexual harassment and verbal abuse. And it seems like Gruden and Allen were exchanging emails also of women in only bikini bottoms, including two pictures of Washington team cheerleaders. And so really bad emails over the course of about seven years. When covering these emails, they found that Gruden basically participated in workplace misconduct by using this language to refer to the coaches and players and other people involved in the NFL. And Bridget, this is far from the league's only issue. The league has also historically not listened to Black players. It's dealt with multiple sexual harassment allegations and inconsistent handling of domestic abuse charges and allegations. I'm curious if you think this particular instance will cause the league to reevaluate what it tolerates? Or is this just like another item on the list of things that may not ever change about the NFL? I think folks are hopeful that this will shine a light on a pervasive culture within the NFL. I think one of the things that stands out for people is how freely both of these men talked in these emails and said these awful things. And it sort of underlines this point and idea that this is a part of the culture where sexism where misogyny, where racism is just accepted. So I think it's something that's a a good start, but I think we'll have to continue to see accountability for things to actually change. 
Yeah, actually, on last week's show on Skip This, we looked into the allegations about the coaches in the National Women's Soccer League. And I think some similar parallels between that story and this story is you see the pervasiveness of abusive players, of using incredibly offensive language in these organizations. And in, you know, in the case of the NFL, it goes beyond coaching and into management. And you kind of keep peeling back the, these layers of the onion and you have to wonder where it stops. So it just makes you wonder how much of this is going on. And so, Bridget, I'm curious, this week on your show, you actually looked at the Me Too movement and industry accountability in the music industry, in particular with female rapper Nicki Minaj. As we've talked about this now in sports, what does kind of wider workplace accountability look like in various industries that receive a lot of attention, like Hollywood, like music, like sports? So I think we're seeing that there are still some industries like sports, there are still some genres within the music industry, like hip hop, that are just now starting to sort of highlight the voices and the stories of people who are calling out the harassment and abuse within their ranks. With hip hop in particular, it's still a problem. There are still a lot of abusers and a lot of people who've been accused of abuse within hip hop that really haven't had a reckoning or been held accountable. And so the Me Too movement hasn't had the same groundswell that we saw in Hollywood, right? Because so many of the artists are protected, right? And because so much of hip hop culture is accepted to be misogynistic, right? Like we haven't seen that same groundswell, even though we know the abuse is there because people talk about it and do it openly. Bridget, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had help this week from Sajine Coriellis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our brand new podcast, Pop Cultured with the Skim. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Find it and more Bridget Armstrong wherever you listen to your podcasts.